the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering, and we're glad to have you with us as well. In uh, the second hour of today's program, we'll share a conversation with Kevin Goose. He's the author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. The book is published by Karis. And that'll be at the top of the the second hour of today's program. So stick around for that. It's a great conversation. First, we're going to take a look at some of the news that includes what's happening with the bootleg fire here in the state of Oregon. Uh, it was around 8 a.m. on Monday. The nation's largest active wildfire was burning some 303,791 acres. Um, the bootleg fire grew by 1 p.m. on Monday to 343,755 acres, or some 537 square miles. That's greater than the size of Phoenix. Well, Wednesday marked the two-week anniversary of the day it was first reported in Klamath County. Firefighters worry what the next two weeks are going to mean. Well, Sunday marked the ninth consecutive day firefighters retreated and regrouped at the scene. Flames uh, danced across retardant lines that they had set up. The fire is growing in all directions. Local authorities reported and added uh, 2,500 acres to the Elder Creek area over the weekend. Um, 25% containment at this point. People on the ground said the fire keeps moving the goalpost. We're running firefighting operations through the day and all through the night. That's according to the incident commander, Joe Hessel. Uh, This fire is a real challenge, and we are looking at sustained battle for the foreseeable future. Well, the bootleg fire continued to inch toward a valuable California carbon forest near Klamath Falls. It was reported on Monday it was 28 miles away from the region, down from 40 miles on Wednesday. It now is the fourth largest wildfire in Oregon's 21 century history. Well, smoke from the bootleg fire delayed at least 329 flights on Monday around the western U.S. More concerns for fire officials is the potential for all that heat and smoke to create so-called firestorms or thunderstorms that can spark new fires. Well, the National Weather Service spotted one forming on Wednesday via what it called terrifying satellite imagery. Please send positive thoughts and well wishes to the firefighters. It's a tough time for them right now, the Weather Service account tweeted. Well, fortunately, we don't have to give positive thoughts and well wishes. We can pray for their safety and for the uh, uh, property owners in those areas that they, too, will be able to maintain their safety. Well, high winds, low humidity, tinderbox conditions, that's what they're calling it, have kept Southern Oregon in continuous drought this year. Forecasts have the region at 90 degrees for the next two weeks. Rainfall is at, um, is rather not in the cards. Firefighting officials previously stated it will take major rain or snow to put this fire out. So that may inform your prayers. Well, the Northwest Interagency Coordination Center reported on Monday there were 16 major wildfires burning, uh, some 491,000 plus acres between Oregon and Washington. Not a single one was contained as of Monday afternoon. 
Pacific Northwest fires have drawn at least 6,000 firefighters, actually closer to 6,500 plus. The bootleg fire, well, they had 2,053 firefighters on the ground. And again, as we're praying about the situation, those firefighters who risk their lives, they're separated from their families, who I'm certain are tremendously worried about them. We need to lift them up in prayer as well. Well, in other news, Senator Lindsey Graham told Fox News on Monday that the Democrats, uh, Democratic push to add amnesty to the multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill is a power grab that may be the dumbest idea in the history of the White House and Senate while there is a border crisis unfolding. Well, I can almost guarantee it's not the dumbest idea. It may be a dumb idea, but not the dumbest. If you give one person legal status, there will be a run on our border like you have never seen before. The dumbest idea in the history of the Senate, he says, the history of the White House. It will lead to the breakdown of law and order beyond what you see today. He was speaking uh, to Laura Ingram. He laid into Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer for attempting to pass, without any Republican support, a monstrous $3.5 trillion budget resolution that he said has not even been written. It's a power grab, Graham went on to say. Uh, the package doesn't have a, um expletive thing to do with infrastructure. They've redefined it to uh, reflect human infrastructure. So if you can use your imagination, that's how it's being applied to this particular legislation. Meanwhile, Florida Governor DeSantis says that migrants are heading straight from Texas to Florida. He stepped up his criticism of the president's immigration policy on Monday, warning that law enforcement personnel informed him that many migrants they encountered at the border were uh, bound for his home state. DeSantis targeted Biden shortly after the governor returned from a trip to the southern border in support of his move to send Florida law enforcement resources to Texas to assist with the local response to the immigration crisis. DeSantis said he was surprised by his discussion with state officers who were sent to the border. Uh, They've made over 2000 apprehensions, over 100 felony arrests, and they say that almost 70 percent of everybody that they have um, Uh, interdicted, said their ultimate destination was the state of Florida. DeSantis said at the press conference, if you think that having a wide open border, 1,000 miles, however far it was uh, from uh, away, doesn't affect here, you're wrong. Well, the statistics DeSantis cited couldn't be independently verified. Florida sent law enforcement officers to the border following a request for assistance from the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, and Arizona governor, Doug Ducey, in June. And other developments, Texas state uh, troopers rather found a semi loaded with 105 migrants being smuggled into the U.S. And we're talking about the back of a semi truck, 105 people being smuggled in. Aside from the immigration implications, that had to have been a terrifying and difficult uh, trip for 105 people in the back of a semi truck where ventilation is always an issue. Governor DeSantis sounded off on Democrats' double standard on immigration. And Governors uh, DeSantis and Abbott, in a border visit, warned of the migrant crisis ripple effect on other states, not just their own. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program today, we're going to uh, share a conversation with Kevin Goose. He's the author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. The book is published by Karis. It's a uh, good conversation. I hope you'll stick around to listen. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, some House Democrats expressed dismay over the Senate's bipartisan infrastructure talks earlier this week during a private phone call underscoring divisions within the party just days before a procedural vote is scheduled for Wednesday. Well, Politico, citing three sources on that call, reported that the conversation was described as fiery. Representative Peter DeFazio, of course, from Oregon, who was on that call, seemed to take comfort that the negotiations were limping along. He said the whole thing is falling apart, probably is the best thing. Uh, Representative Salud Carbajal, and I apologize for mispronouncing, told Politico that he was also on the call and said the whole process seemed, well, like it wasn't very productive. I'll paraphrase. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is pressuring lawmakers to reach an agreement this week on the pair of massive domestic spending measures, signaling that Democrats want to push ahead aggressively on the president's multi-trillion dollar agenda. The sad thing is it's not complete, uh, not completed. Well, the Republicans skewered uh, Senator Schumer for setting Wednesday for the infrastructure deadline and bipartisan senators agreed to the new infrastructure pay fors after dropping IRS enforcement, which the GOP demanded. Uh, uh, Senator Cassidy blasted Schumer in the White House for rushing toward the vote on the infrastructure bill that isn't written yet. And Mark Meadows predicted the infrastructure deal will fall apart. Well, we'll see what actually happens. Meanwhile, Tom Barrick, a private equity investor and former senior advisor to former President Donald Trump, was arrested today over illegal foreign lobbying he allegedly did on behalf of the United Arab Emirates while Trump was campaigning for election in 2016 and during his presidency through April of 2018. Uh, Barack served as chairman of Trump's 2017 inaugural committee. He was issued a seven-count indictment in federal court in Brooklyn, New York. Prosecutors accused uh, Barack of exploiting his connections to the Trump White House to advance the foreign policy goals of the UAE. The Trump uh, crony was also charged with obstructing justice, making false statements to federal law enforcement officials during an interview in June of 2019. The indictment alleged that the two other defendants, Matthew Grimes and UAE National Rashid Sultan Rashid al-Malik al-Shahi, uh, use Barack's special status to advance the interests of and provide intelligence to the UAE while simultaneously failing to notify the attorney general that their actions were taken at the direction of senior UAE officials. Grimes is a former employee of Barack's investment management firm. Well, prosecutors uh, claim the three defendants failed to disclose that they were acting in the capacity of foreign lobbyists to the U.S. attorney general as is required. Well, we're not sure what the folks at YouGov and Brightline Watch were expecting when they did the polling, but we probably could have saved them a lot of time and money, especially in their top line results, all of which suggested that our nation is deeply divided. Did we really need a poll to confirm that? Well, just how divided? Well, consider the results of this poll and this question, which was um, just one among many. President Biden made it a signature goal to reunite a country scarred by partisan and regional divides. Our surveys seek to assess whether the animus that characterized the Trump era persists. We therefore repeated a question from our January-February 2021 survey asking respondents in our public sample about their support for breaking up the United States. Secession, if you will. As in last winter's survey, we asked respondents the following. Would you support or oppose your state seceding from the United States to join a new union with um, list of states in a new union? 
Well, as in the previous survey, levels of expressed support for secession are arrestingly high, with 37 percent of respondents overall indicating willingness to secede. Well, within each reason, a region, rather, the dominant partisan group is most supportive of uh, secession. Republicans are most secessionists in the South and Mountain regions, whereas it is Democrats in the West Coast and in the Northeast. In the narrowly divided Heartland region, it is partisan independents who find the idea more attractive. That's somewhat surprising to me that Democrats in the West Coast and Northeast would want to secede. I mean, this is the haven for uh, liberalism. Well, if we consider Joe Biden's inaugural pledge within uh, wherein rather he promised to work as hard as for those who didn't vote for me as those who did, we might uh, call this the unity question. We might also look back to that pledge and see in retrospect how disingenuous it was, how unsurprising these polling results actually are. Take a look at the map. As the survey's authorities note, these patterns are consistent from our January-February survey, but the changes since then are troubling. The previous survey was uh, fielded just weeks after the January 6th uprising. By the summer, they anticipated political tempers may have cooled, not necessarily as a result of any great reconciliation, but perhaps from sheer exhaustion after the relentless drama of the previous uh, months. They came across an interesting and deeply detailed survey, unfortunately corrupted by the the, uh, bias of the polling organization, Bright Line. Language like the relentless drama of Trump didn't help in, you know, having a a survey that was um, unbiased, but... Uh, Another uh, giveaway, many of the questions polled not only Republicans and Democrats, but an export sample of political scientists as well. And in every case, these experts track even further left in their responses than do the Democrats. For example, D.C. statehood and the abolition of the filibuster are overwhelmingly supported by these political scientists, while policies that limit voting, note the partisan nature of that phrasing, and local officials refusing to certify elections results meet with near unanimous opposition. More evidence of the pollsters' bias was found in the wording of their top-line results. For example, among the electoral reform proposals recently adopted or currently under consideration in the states, experts perceive grave threats from bills that encroach on the political independence of local election officials and that restrict mail voting. And this, experts rate Donald Trump's continued refusal to accept the results of the 2020 election as highly abnormal and important, end quote. Well, in some, yes, we're deeply divided as a nation. Yes, Joe Biden has exacerbated that divide, which isn't surprising. You've got partisan politics in Washington always. And yes, pollsters should be viewed with great suspicion, but it is a rather interesting consideration. Well, Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci clashed over alleged U.S. government funding of gain of function research on that coronavirus in Wuhan, China, during testimony before a Senate committee on Tuesday. This was a fiery exchange. And if you have the opportunity to witness it, it's really rather interesting. Well, the senator implied that Fauci misled Congress during the May testimony in which he said the U.S. had never funded gain of function projects at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, gain-of-function research involves making viruses more contagious or deadly in a laboratory. Well, the senator said that in May, this was the 11th, uh, in testimony, Fauci stated that the NIH has never and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And yet, gain-of-function research was done entirely in the Wuhan Institute by Dr. Xi, 
uh, and was funded by the NIH, end quote. And he apparently was reading from a National Institutes of Health um, document. Well, the senator, Senator Paul, cited a paper by the uh, WIV scientists entitled Discovery of a Rich Gene Pool of Bat SARS Related Coronaviruses Provides New Insights into the Origin of SARS Coronavirus, which describes efforts to produce uh, chimeric coronaviruses, i.e., uh, altered by man. Now, the paper lists the National Institutes of Health as a source of funding. And um, Senator Paul asserted that the research recorded in the paper explicitly matches the definition of gain of function research. Well, knowing that is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your May 11th claim that the National Institutes of Health never funded gain of function research in Wuhan? The senator asked the doctor. Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement, Fauci answered. Rather curtly, this paper was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain is not being gain of function, end quote. Well, Paul interjected, when you take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans, you're saying that's not gain of function research? Fauci responded, that is correct. And Senator Paul, you do not know what you're talking about, quite frankly. Well, then the senator uh, read an NIH definition of gain of function research. I won't quote it, but it uh, seemed to contradict the doctor. Uh, The WIV researchers took animal viruses, then increased their transmissibility to humans. How you can say that is not gain of function. It's a dance and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people around the world dying from a pandemic. I totally resent the lie you are now propagating, Senator, Dr. Fauci said. If you look at those viruses studied in the WIV paper, those viruses are molecularly impossible to result in SARS-CoV-2. You are implying what we did was responsible for the deaths of individuals. If anybody is lying here, Senator, it is you. Now, it's difficult to know who is accurate in their assessment of what that document indicates. But the back and forth was really rather telling. Well, I found this rather interesting. Playing puzzles, card games, reading books, and engaging in other mentally stimulating activity later in life can help delay the onset of Alzheimer's dementia by five years, researchers found. Findings published in Neurology on the 14th of this month analyzed nearly 2,000 patients, about 80-year-olds on average, and free of dementia at the study's start. Well, during seven years of follow-up with annual exams and cognitive tests, some 457 people, about 90 years old on average, developed dementia or impaired ability to remember, think, or make decisions that interfere with uh, doing everyday activities, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Well, the study participants answered questions about cognitive activity when they were kids, adults, and in middle age, and also how often they read books, played board games or puzzles, Over the years, now respondents who were the most mentally active typically developed dementia by age 94 compared to those least mentally active who usually develop dementia by 89 or some five years sooner. Well, the difference upheld after researchers controlled for other factors potentially confounding dementia risk like sexual activity and education, according to a related News release. Well, the good news is that it's never too late to start doing the kinds of inexpensive, accessible activities they looked at in the study, according to its author. So, again, you can um, very likely have an impact or delay Alzheimer's uh, dementia 
by doing puzzles, card games later in life. So something to uh, to consider. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Kevin Goose. Dry Bones is the title of his book, Redeeming Your Past. Well, returning to uh, some of the headlines, Russia is warning the U.S. over hypersonic missiles in Europe that could lead to inadvertent conflict. Well, China is threatening to nuke Japan over Taiwan in a video played on a Communist Chinese Party-sanctioned channel. And MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell says Washington is improving in safety, while noting it has uh, had over 100 homicides so far this year. A hammerhead shark charged toward a swimmer, while beachgoers screamed in terror in a viral video. Wall Street is closely monitoring the spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19 as the return to offices looms for many. And a jury rules against Walmart in Walmart, rather, in a discrimination case awarding a woman one hundred and twenty five million dollars. Well, Ben and Jerry's is on um, thin ice after their latest political stunt. We'll tell you more about that shortly. And the U.S. and Germany plan to announce a deal on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in just a few days. Well, Ben and Jerry announced they're pulling their ice cream from portions of Israel. They announced announced rather that we believe in an inconsistent It is inconsistent with our values for Ben and Jerry's ice cream to be sold in the occupied Palestinian territory. We also hear and recognize the concern shared with us by our fans and trusted partners. Bruce Pearl, who's the head basketball coach at Auburn, says Ben and Jerry say they're sensitive to concerns of their fans. I'm a fan. I'm also Jewish and I'm upset. Every square inch of the OPT or as the Bible refers, Judea and Samaria is biblical land. Abraham is buried in Hebron. Jesus born in Bethlehem, Ark of the Covenant in Shiloh. Love thy neighbor. That was a Twitter post. Mark Davis says this, and I will continue to forbid entry of anti-Semitic Ben and Jerry's into my freezer. Uh, From Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, there are many ice cream brands, but only one Jewish state. Ben and Jerry's has decided to brand itself as the anti-Israel ice cream. This decision is morally wrong, and I believe that it will become clear that it is also commercially wrong. The boycott against Israel, a democratic uh, uh, democracy surrounded by islands of terrorism, reflects a total loss of way. The boycott does not work and will not work, and we will fight it with full force. The BDS movement celebrated the decision with Ben and Jerry's. Um, A leading socially responsible international company is finally bringing its policy on Israel's regime of oppression against Palestinians in line with its position on Black Lives Matter, Matter rather, and other justice struggles. So the battle lines have been drawn. Meanwhile, President Biden is downplaying inflation, saying our experts believe and the data shows the uh, that most of the price increases we've seen are uh, were expected and expected to be temporary. But the Wall Street Journal editorial board asked price increases were expected by whom? By contributors to these pages, sure, but not by the White House Budget Office, which forecast inflation of 2.1% in 2021 and 2022 in its recent budget proposal, not by the Federal Reserve, which has underestimated inflation at each of its meetings this year at its June monetary policy meeting. The median forecast among Fed officials for 2021 was 3 percent in March. Their forecast was 2.2 percent 
In June, the actual consumer price increase over a year ago was 5.4%. And Kevin McCarthy points out on Twitter, prices on everything from gas to groceries are skyrocketing. Inflation is hurting hardworking middle-class families the hardest. A key driver of these price increases and increased costs of living is crystal clear. Massive increases in government spending by the president. Well, Larry Elder is suing California as the state keeps him off the gubernatorial ballot. The only box checked, Elder said, incomplete, redacted or unredacted income tax returns uh, were filed. Uh, We filed both redacted and unredacted tax returns, he claims. So I guess what they're saying is we redacted something that shouldn't have been redacted or we didn't redact something that should have been redacted. Never has anybody been disqualified from a ballot here in California for a reason like that. He added, I'll see you in court. Well, the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics says all kids should wear masks in school. We need to prioritize getting children back into schools alongside their friends and teachers. And we all play a role in making sure it happens safely. That's a quote from Sonia O'Leary. She's the chair of the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on School Health, combining layers of protection that include vaccinations, masking and clean hands hygiene uh, will make in-person learning safe and possible for everyone. But of course, there is no vaccine for children that young. Well, Disney changes their Jungle Cruise ride to make it more culturally sensitive. This comes from a Disney exec who leads inclusion strategies. When we look at something and realize that content is inappropriate and may perpetuate a misconception or a stereotype, our intention is to take a look at it critically and figure out a way to enhance it to make the necessary changes so it is relevant. Ken Burns has declared that this is the most fraught time in the history of the republic. The most fraught time in the history of the republic. Well, particularly silly coming from someone who did a documentary on the Civil War. Charles Cook points out what he said wasn't inaccurate. It was entirely ridiculous. It's not merely that our current era doesn't compare to the Civil War. It's that it doesn't compare to much else either. According to a new poll, just 39 percent of likely voters believe the country is headed in the right direction. And that's a three week trend. Well, the new uh, rather the next Supreme Court term will likely see some very big decisions. Uh, Conservative judges in particular tend to come from a legal culture and a judicial philosophy that hesitates at taking sweeping dramatic leaps. But several of these cases are framed in a way that will invite major high profile rulings. Well, that undoubtedly reflects, at least in part, the litigation strategies of conservative activists. This will be the first term of the court in which most of the petitions um, bring cases for the court's review were filed after Justice Amy Coney Barrett replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Activists are eager to see how far the court's 6-3 majority is willing to go. And the Democrats repealed the Hyde Amendment. It will kill black lives. Hmm. From the story, opponents of the Hyde Amendment simply do not know what they are opposing. The Hyde Amendment is simply uh, legislation uh, providing... uh, 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 Legislative provision, rather, that prevents federal dollars from funding abortions. And when the Hyde Amendment went into effect in 1980, it stopped an estimated 300,000 abortions from being performed annually. It's hard to see the scope of abortions impact on black communities without thinking these numbers through. We know that there have been 44 million abortions since Roe versus Wade was enacted. I don't want to just gloss over that 44 
million abortions. Black babies constituted about 19 million of those abortions. Over 40% of black Americans that comprise about 13% of the country's population have been aborted. A sobering thought. Well, gymnastics are topping the list of the most anticipated Olympic sport. Not surprising for this summer. You probably guessed that, but at the bottom of the list, something called rugby sevens. Yeah, you'll have to look it up. I have no idea. Well, Lindsey Graham calls it the dumbest idea in the history of the Senate, warning Democrats uh, aim to sneak amnesty into the infrastructure bill that um, can pass without a single GOP vote, vote is a bad idea. And a House bill allocates $40 million for a hazardous red flag gun confiscation program. Well, Kevin McCarthy names five Republicans to serve on the January 6th Inquisition. And the Microsoft Exchange hack has been formally uh, blamed on China. Well, the U.S. transferred a Guantanamo Bay prisoner to Morocco the Gitmo population has dropped to 39. Well, defund the police advocates are silent after D.C. passed 100 homicides in the first half of 2021. And a sixth Texas Democrat has tested positive for COVID. That Democrat in D.C., of course. The University of Indiana's vaccine mandate upheld by the president's appointee, Judge Damon R. Lichty, who cites an early 20th century smallpox vaccine mandate. And in the annals of the social justice caliphate, even women willing to be objectified can't get ahead. Sports Illustrated released their swimsuit issue with a transgender or rather biological male on the cover. And Marie Claire is urging Hollywood to depict more parents having abortions. That'll be entertaining. And a Pentagon contractor is investigating extremism. Assets that web um, searches about Black Lives Matter raise concerns about white supremacy. So if you're looking um, looking for resources on Black Lives Matter, the assumption is it's because you oppose the idea, not that you want to understand or know more about it. Anyway, Twitter oligarchs have suspended Marjorie Taylor Greene over misleading COVID information. Censorship is in these days. And it's official. The COVID recession lasted just two months, the shortest in U.S. history, but not inflation. Two thirds of likely voters say Vice President Kamala Harris is not ready to be president. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has invested over $1.4 million in tax-the-rich-themed political merchandise. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the next hour, we'll hear from Kevin Goose, author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Well, on this day in history, 1944, an attempt by a group of German officials to assassinate Adolf Hitler with a bomb fails as the explosion only wounds the Nazi leader. 1968, the first International Special Olympics Summer Games organized by Eunice Kennedy Shriver are held at Soldier Field in Chicago. 1969, astronauts Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin become the first men to walk on the moon after reaching the surface in their Apollo 11 lunar module. A decade later, or nearly a decade later, America's Viking 1 robot spacecraft makes a successful first-ever landing on Mars. 1977, the U.N. Security Council votes to admit Vietnam to the world body. And on this day in history, 1990, Supreme Court Justice William Brennan, one of the court's most liberal voices, announces he is stepping down. 
2012, gunman James Holmes opens fire inside a crowded movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, during a midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises, killing 12 people, wounding 70 others. Holmes would be convicted of murder and attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Finally, on this day in history, 2019, Marvel's Avengers Endgame passes Avatar to become the highest grossing film of all time. Wow. Well, it happened today. Richard Branson, he won the space race, but Bezos, well, his blue origin traveled 13 miles higher and his space plans for the future are much bigger. Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket reached an altitude of 66 miles above the surface of the planet. Virgin Galactic's VSS Unity used mothership VMS Eve to fly 53.5 miles above the Earth's surface. The uh, VSS Unity is like NASA's space shuttle traveling space after being flown via its mothership, the VMS Eve. Blue Origin's new Shepard is a much more traditional rocket. Blue Origin's trip lasted just over 10 minutes, while Virgin's trip, 90 minutes. Uh, Once it reached 50,000 feet, VSS Unity landed on a runway like a traditional airplane. The new Shepard capsule fell to Earth. uh, Parachutes opened and thrusters fired to um, cushions and touchdown below. Blue Origin could charge around $200,000 to fly to space, while Virgin Galactic is charging $250,000. Branson flew to a space with three other mission specialists and two pilots. On Blue Origin's autonomous flight, Bezos was joined by his brother, Mark, and the oldest and youngest astronauts. Well, Bezos and his three fellow astronauts, including, as I mentioned, his brother, took off from their base at Van Horn, Texas, at about 9.12 a.m. Eastern Time today, the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, 12 minutes behind schedule. They ascended for four minutes before the New Shepard rocket booster uh, separated from the capsule, leaving them floating in zero gravity for about four minutes. They then returned to Earth with parachutes controlling the pace of their descent, touching down in the Texas desert at about 9.22 a.m., 10 minutes and 20 seconds after liftoff. Well, the 10-minute journey cost $5.5 billion, $550 million per minute. Bezos, who stepped down as Amazon's CEO earlier this year and will now split his time between Blue Origin and his environmental charity, said at a press conference after the flight, for every Amazon customer, you guys paid for all this, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. So you apparently are a... uh, a contributor to his space program. Branson is 70. He pumped his fists in the air after he returned from space. He stepped onto the runway of the New Mex- in New Mexico before uh, skipping toward his daughter Holly's twins uh, and scooping them up in his arm. Well, Branson, who said he had dreamed about traveling to space since childhood, shared a group hug with the rest of his family, including his wife and his son and granddaughter. Uh, it was a a big day for him, and I suppose a big day for the rest of us if space travel is to be a part of the future. Well, the business models of the two companies overlap in space tourism, but Blue Origin has far greater ambitions than Virgin Galactic. 
At the end of 2020, Virgin Galactic had more than 600 paying customers and another 700 refundable deposits for its flights. In addition to space tourism, the company is going to use its proprietary technologies and capabilities for other commercial and governmental uses, according to its fourth quarter 2020 earnings report. It also sees opportunities to develop high-speed global mobility vehicles that drastically reduce travel time from point-to-point travel. It's akin to um, being able to send customers from Los Angeles to Tokyo in a couple of hours, according to Yahoo Finance. So generally, when there's some sort of space program, it has some terra firma implications as well. Other potential applications of the company technology we're being told includes being a high speed test bed, uh, alternating the uh, mothership and configurations and high altitude platforms, which Apparently, it's going to be very useful. According to the Wall Street Journal, SpaceX has received $2.8 billion in 52 contracts from NASA and the Pentagon over the past 14 federal fiscal years. By comparison, Blue Origin, founded in 2000, has received $496.5 million in 33 contact, uh, contracts. So that's uh, uh, a significant difference. The company has goals of becoming a company like SpaceX, like Boeing, like Lockheed Martin, um, the former director of uh, the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University says that ambition includes building reusable space vehicles. Bezos uh, told CNBC, similar to what Musk and SpaceX have already done with their Falcon line of uh, rockets. If you want to be a space entrepreneur today, you have to do everything from the beginning. Uh, there's no real infrastructure that's uh, uh, at an affordable cost. So that's what we have to do It's uh, is build that kind of infrastructure. And then future generations will get to uh, the rest on top of that. Well, these are like the uh, entrepreneurs in the early history of the, con- uh, of the country um, who built the infrastructure that we uh, built the country on many, many years ago. I'm not sure I'd be willing to go off into space. I'm looking forward to that. You know, when the dead in Christ rise and he they they're caught up in the air, the view from that event, although my guess is at that time, I'm going to care very little about uh, looking back at terra firma and uh, will be so fixated on Jesus himself who has returned that it may not be that significant at that time. But I'll wait until until then. Anyway, court packing supporters told President Biden's Supreme Court Commission that sitting Supreme Court justices represent a grave threat to democracy and remarks alleged uh, an urgent need to add justices to the bench after former President Trump appointed three during his term. Now, this is a, a dramatic shift away from what most liberals historically have uh, thought of the court. When you cannot pass something legislatively, you look to the court to do it for you. So now the suggestion is if the court is not leaning in one direction, uh, then it is a threat to the democracy, which is a constitutional republic. Well, the comments came during a marathon meeting, including six panels examining the Supreme Court nomination process, the composition of the court and more. Conservatives on those panels, meanwhile, said it is actually progressive calls uh, to pack the court that will harm its legitimacy beyond repair. Now, the meeting was the third held by the commission which is tasked with producing a report for the president later this year on the status of the debate over the U.S. court system, uh, particularly the Supreme Court and potential reforms to it. Now, there are real questions about whether or not this is um, a viable role for the legislative branch uh, to review the the uh, role of the judiciary 
an attempt to alter, to minimize, to maximize certain elements of how the judiciary is to function. So the constitutionality, the balance of power that was originally intended is uh, being threatened by this whole enterprise. So it's uh, it's rather interesting to witness. It's certainly not the first time it's come up to see where it goes from here is uh, uh, what's of great interest. And it could certainly threaten what we have understood this constitutional republic to be the separation of powers on how that ought to function. Nan Aaron, who's the president of the Progressive Alliance for Justice, accused Republicans of hypocrisy, hypocrisy for how they confirmed justices uh, Neil Gorsuch, <clears throat> Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and accused those justices of bias. It would be one thing if these justices then turned around and were fair and impartial. Of course, fair and impartial is in the eye of the beholder. If they had been uh, liberal justices, this would not be a discussion. However, in scores of democracy cases, they've consistently undermined democracy and aided the very party that appointed him uh, them. She said Republicans are using this undemocratic and partisan majority on the court to cement their own power. Now, the court is supposed to be it shouldn't matter which uh, which executive nominated that individual. The, the court is supposed to be beyond politics It has been politicized, not necessarily from within the court, but from without the court by the executive and legislative branches. And I guess the uh, chickens have come home to roost. So rather interesting to see what happens next. Uh, But there are real threats to the uh, order that the Constitution establishes uh, in this uh, ongoing debate uh, that the president, I think, deferred to so that he wouldn't have to say one way or the other that I support this uh, or I don't support it. It's it's pretty much a given what this commission is going to recommend. What happens next will be what's most interesting. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And then in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, we'll hear from Kevin Goose. Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past is the title of the book. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in his latest book points out that throughout life's journey, everyone has moments when the past affects the present. We all know what that's about. We come to a crossroads where the past has to be faced, and we know on some level our lives require God's healing. Well, these junctures usually fall under one of three categories, believing our best is behind us, believing we missed our best through bad decisions, or believing the hurts caused by others or ourselves are insurmountable to live our best life in God. Well, his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past, invites you to see healing. It's not only possible, but that it can be yours for um, for time and eternity. Well, Kevin Goose is my guest. He served in ministry since 1991. His deep conviction is that anyone can discover all of God's potential for their life. In addition to pastoring, Kevin has done leadership development, been a life coach to young fathers, a director of hospice, and a high school soccer coach. He's been married to Beth since 1989. They have four children, five grandchildren, um, two sons-in-law, and a daughter-in-law. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. You know, this is a season in which many of us, although not all, have more time to really think about uh, things that we might not um, be able to or or were able to avoid during times when we were more active outside of our homes. So this is a very timely subject 
um, Dry Bones Redeeming Your Past. And let's begin by uh, drawing attention to the reference that Dry Bones uh, makes from Scripture. This is a reference to Ezekiel. Can you explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the story uh, what these dry bones represent? Yes, the, the dry bones in Ezekiel represents when uh, the Lord shows Ezekiel, the nation of Israel, and basically beyond hope. And as he shows him the vision of these dry bones, he asks him, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he answers wisely, and he says, Lord, um, you know. And then God begins to show him how what was dead could be alive again. And so the reference for us in the book is that there are times in our lives, it just happened in my own story, but I know in many others, where we look at, so to speak, things in shambles, and God says, can I do something with this? And really all we know to say is, well, Lord, you know, meaning we sure hope so, but we're not sure. But God has a way of letting us know that, yes, he can rebuild what was broken and he can make alive what was dead. You know, I think oftentimes when we read in Scripture a reference like that you've just mentioned from Ezekiel 37, it's easier for us to imagine that that could happen than that our past, our history, the thing we look back on with regret um, can be reconciled, redeemed, and we can move forward in hope. Why do you think it's so challenging for us to uh, to imagine that we too can find uh, redemption, that we can find uh, that our past is redeemed? There are a couple of things I think really are, are pivotal in that. One, I find that for many of us and for many people, forgiving themselves is sometimes harder than forgiving others because we, we replay thoughts, attitudes, actions, behaviors that we're like, how could I have done that? Or why did this happen? And so I think this forgiving of self, it's almost like we, we practically have a hard time believing that God is greater than what we've done, which ties into the second is, is that we don't make the shift from shame to regret. You know, shame like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve confronted with their sin, they run from God and hide. Mm-hmm. Where, where repentance is where we run to God and say, Lord, you're our only hope. And I think that for some people, whether it's not forgiving themselves or getting stuck in a place of shame, they have a hard time seeing a way forward. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that's uh, ripe territory for the enemy who wants to exploit our inability to fully experience the forgiveness, the redemption, and the healing that God has in store for us and can literally wreck our lives based on a past experience that we may have repented of and moved on from. Uh, So it's really important, this book, Redeeming Your Past, getting us to a place where we not only accept what God has given us, um, that we are able to move forward without shame, as you've described. Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's this... It's the sense that the enemy lies to us when when he tempts us, somehow believing that God is holding out on us, right? Temptation at its core is, I'm questioning God's character, his commands, but then if I give in to temptation and sin, then he just kicks us when we're down and tries to make us believe we're unlovable, unforgivable. And so your point is, is so right that this moving past that shame and then seeing that God can do something um, is so key. How personal is this book um, to you? It's very personal. You know, I had been in ministry at when, when really I hit bottom. I'd been in ministry about 25 years, uh, had been married about 27 years. 
And I was the poster child for burnout. Uh, I was just a hard driver who just on some level believed if I pushed harder, I could escape what were those either hurts from the past or even the disappointments in the present. And I became very bitter and very blinded. And unfortunately, there came a point where I crossed some ethical and moral boundaries that required me to step back from from ministry and walk through restoration. Um, I had broken my covenant with God, with my wife. I had, you know, brought hurt and to other people, my children, family, and really had brought shame to the name of Jesus Christ. And so personally, I had to walk this journey when Ezekiel, although he hadn't been wrong, but in comparing to drive, I did the ash heap. Um, he was like, Lord, I don't even see a way forward. But God revealed himself in a powerful way. And so this book comes out of uh, God healing me and my family from a broken place that many would have thought wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So this is uh, definitely a hopeful book. What are some of the lessons that you learned on your journey to uh, to healing? You know, there there are kind of a few that really stand out to me as pivotal, and and that is that God can see us through the lens of forgiveness and give that forgiveness, but that I have to be patient for the journey of other people to see my heart and my life. Mm. It's it's kind of like I want. God sees my heart, and so he knows my intentions, but other people can only see actions. And so I think a first principle was I couldn't be frustrated or put demands or deadlines on people for their journey to not just forgive, but also to trust. And that was pivotal because the deeper the relationship, sometimes the longer the journey. And so it was important for me to learn to rest in my identity in God, even though he was very clear to me that the journey of healing with people is different. And just because they have a journey doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. But that was a first key lesson. Mm, mm. Yeah, and that can be very, uh, very challenging. Now, what advice do you give to someone who feels that they have made such horrific uh, mess of their life? They've made such serious mistakes that there's really no hope for a better future. I mean, you've already given us a glimpse into your own story and that journey of healing and restoration. But what do you say to the one who says, well, but you know, my situation is, is beyond the pale. You you know, first is that even though it's hard for us to, to come to grips with what we're feeling, there's a couple key principles. It's good to acknowledge what we're feeling, but I, I heard a pastor say once my feelings are real, but they may not always be right. And in that, there has to come a place where I would say to somebody that we have to make a decision, even if our emotions have to come along in time, where the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is greater in my life than what I've done wrong. Uh, And so there's a place of saying, Lord, even my failures can't be bigger than you. And then second in that, I believe there's a hope in Scripture that because God doesn't hide from us the broken people that he had to redeem and restore. I mean, many people, if we were God's HR department, we we may not have hired Moses, you know, or David. We would have said that, that, that Peter was there. We would have said, what do you mean Rahab or Ruth? But God has this amazing way to say, look, you see what that's broken? But that person is ready for me to be their everything. And now I can assure them we see them as great saints of the scripture, but we have to be mindful they began as broken people that God had to redeem. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a hopeful look at how to redeem our past from that status of dry bones. Again, my guest this afternoon is Kevin Goose, uh, and his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kevin Goose, who is the author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Now, you break down three ways in which we look at our past, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, we are beyond hope. Can you describe for us these three ways in which we tend to look back and uh, imagine that there is no uh, hope for redemption? Yes, the first is the glory days, and that's where a person looks back at a time and says, my life was at its best then, and they are struggling with either trying to recreate it in the presence or having a frustration that they can't, and so there's a sense in which they have to let go to move forward. The second is when people have regrets over missed opportunities. It's kind of like the, the opposite of the first. It's saying, oh, if I would have done something different or better or right, my life wouldn't be where it is now. And they believe that they're living a consolation prize life as well. This is the best I can have. And they don't have a full picture of redemption. And the third is the healing from past pain, which can be either or both pain that I've caused or the pain that has been done to me. And there are times people are dragging that along with them as an open wound or a bitterness or a pain in their life that God needs to bring healing to. Mm. You write that our decisions can either break the bonds of the past or perpetuate past failures into ongoing behavior. Explain what you mean by that and where we begin once we've identified, okay, this is where I am. This is where I'd like to go. How do I get from here to there? Yes. I like to picture it from like a a chore my mom used to give me as a child, and that was pulling weeds. I would sometimes try to snip those dandelions off at the top and think the job was done, but all it took was a little bit of heat and time, and, and the weed would return. For many people, they'll look at the example or the event that just happened, and they'll try to you know, deal with that in the moment, but they don't go back to the root of where things have come from. And as a result, they tend to be on a repeating cycle. And so one of the keys is that whether it's the glory days, past regret, or past pain, is being willing to kind of dig in, whether through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, a skilled helper, a pastor, to be able to dig in and say, now, wait a minute, where did this start in my life as a root because this needs to be dug out. I'm tired of the snipping and going back, snipping, returning, and going back. And so by getting to the root, we can experience healing that doesn't just deal with the symptom, but deals with the core issues. Mm. What role does humility play in redeeming our past? Oh, this one's, this one's tough. You know, these tensions of Scripture, it, it tells us that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then He will lift us up. Because one of the challenges when we're trying to get our past redeemed is we can fall into the traps of either control, uh, impatience, or trying to force something. And humility is, is basically saying, Lord, I, I will stay in this posture of repentance and renewal as long as I need to and as long as you have me to. A great example is Zacchaeus, who when he comes to Jesus He says, I'll give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've taken from someone, I'll return it fourfold. Well, Zacchaeus probably couldn't remember everybody he had ripped off. But he basically said to Jesus, 
I'm in a posture and place that as you bring people across my path, I'm willing to walk that healing journey. And so humility keeps us from being defensive, which could communicate to people that we're really not sorry. Humility is key to showing the core of our heart that we want to walk this journey with God and others. Mm. One of the things we tend to do when we're on a journey is to look to the right and to the left, to look at others, compare ourselves to them. Uh, But you make the point that when we do that, we can um, distort the way that we see our own lives. We're perhaps less honest or or our, our goal is distorted or we think less than we ought to. How important is it that we not compare ourselves to others? And what do we do if that's a practice that we are in the habit of doing? You know, if we look to others, the the problem is it's almost like a type of deflection. And so if we see that starting to happen, it it doesn't mean we don't love others, but we recognize I can only take responsibility for what God has placed before me. I think of Peter when Jesus restored him after his three denials. Right after Jesus restores him in John uh, 21, Peter looks at the apostle John and says, well, Jesus, what about him? And the Lord says, well, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I believe that when we're distracted, it's like the runner who's coming to the tape, but they look to the side to see how the other person's doing. It slows them and it actually robs them of the victory that they were intended to have. And so I think that it's, it's not a self-absorption, but rather it's a focus that says, my eyes have to be on Jesus and the work he's doing in me. Then others will see that through me. If I compare myself to others, we tend to get coveting or jealous or we feel inferior, and all of those are just hurdles in the healing process. That is so true. I ran for the University of Oregon, and one of the things the coaches always drummed into us was to run straight way through the line, not to look to the right or the left, because you're absolutely right. It will deprive you of those um, absolutely critical seconds as you approach the finish line that mean the difference between victory and defeat. So that's such great, um, great advice. Now, I know for you, the church... Um, came alongside and supported your journey toward healing. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because I think people have different experiences. What role should we anticipate the church uh, to play? And as those of us who are the church are listening, what should our response be as we're witnessing uh, or participating in the journey of uh, those who are looking to see their past redeemed? There are kind of two categories when it comes to the church that I think are pivotal. One is what I call those those core people who will be part of the redemption process. Think of like with the Apostle Paul, Ananias, who came to him right after his conversion, or Barnabas, who went to him and believed in him and built him up during his discipleship journey. God will have key Christians who can see past what we did and into the core of who we are, either because maybe they weren't hurt as deeply or God's just given them a tremendous gift of a redemptive heart in how they see others. It's vital for a person to connect with those core people who can help along that journey. As to the crowd, I think if people, they know someone who's, who has fallen morally or has failed and committed sin, is that we should never celebrate it. And second, we should avoid cynicism. It's okay to say, I'm Mm. disappointed, I'm hurt, um, I feel betrayed. Those are truthful statements, but the recognition is to say that Jesus is more powerful with what they have done wrong in my life. There are people who showed grace that were part of the crowd. Now, long-term, 
I didn't necessarily stay in, in deep relationship because I was no longer their pastor, but they did it the right way before, so to speak, that relationship faded as it, as it needed to, while others in the core, they walked with me over the course of months and years, and God used them in a pivotal way in my life. We're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My guest is Kevin Goose. Uh, bitterness played a role in your healing process, and it's not altogether uncommon if you are reflecting back on those glory days or regrets over missed opportunities or um, you're healing from past pain that either you inflicted on others or others have inflicted on you. How important is it not to uh, descend into bitterness on this journey toward healing? It is essential. Uh, unfortunately, I learned the hard way. When Paul in his letters talks about how bitterness can cause us to bite and devour one another, uh, Jeremiah the prophet, God even said to him in Jeremiah fifteen nineteen that the precious and the vile had to be separated or sifted. Bitterness is a poison. It, it, it's something that can be vile in our lives, and what it does is it pollutes the precious work of God. And so bitterness focuses on what life isn't that I wish it was or what the other person did or your frustration over what I did. And one of the keys was recognizing that God had to extract that and reinstate in my life and as he does in others' lives, gratitude, thanksgiving, praise. Uh, you know, in the scriptures, whether it's Job or other characters, they teach us that even when life is difficult, we can come to a posture of worship and praise and joy, but bitterness will just pull us down. And for some people, they're concerned, but if I let go of that, the other person will get away with it. Or what if God forgives them? But at the core, bitterness hurts the individual. As one pastor, uh, Jimmy Evans says, forgiveness doesn't make the person right. It just makes me free. Mm, that's so good. We're talking with Kevin Goose. His book is Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. We're going to take a quick break and continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're uh, listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Kevin Goose. He is a pastor and author. His latest book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. It is a personal work. He doesn't just write about the subject from a uh, the standpoint of uh, just being theoretical, but this is an experience he has uh, has enjoyed in being reconciled and restored and offers his insight and scripture uh, to uh, those who are in that same position. One of the things you write about is that we oftentimes try to justify our behavior, even when we know it's wrong, and we can uh, really struggle with just admitting that this was wrong. There's no justification for it, although we may have a list of reasons why it happened. Can you talk a little bit about um, having that uh, perspective where you're willing to just admit what's wrong rather than um, uh, trying to justify our behavior? Yes. What happens is with justifying our behavior is that, is that somehow I'm trying to say that someone else's wrongdoing justifies me doing wrong, or in some cases, I'm looking for a shortcut to a destination or a goal. And so what happens is there's these defenses. So like think of Adam in the garden. He tries to blame God. He tries to blame Eve. Yet the most beautiful example in scripture is David in Psalm 51, where after confronted with his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and Nathan the prophet comes to him and we get the Psalm that comes out of his brokenness. 
he starts with saying, Lord, against you and you alone, I have sinned. And when he joined, there was adultery, there was murder, there was deception. But David understood the problem began with his relationship with God, and then it affected everything else. If we're willing to just say, Lord, no excuses, uh, no explanations, I sinned, I was wrong. What it does, it kind of it lets our guards down, it breaks down the defenses, and then it opens us up for the healing. Otherwise, we're trying to jockey and play games with God and others when God then has to wait for us to become completely broken and ready for his restoring and forgiving work. Oh, that is so good. But I think we do tend to uh, try to fix the people around us rather than work on ourselves when our own past needs redeeming. I suppose that just is an outgrowth of our sin nature. But the temptation is to deflect attention from ourselves, to blame shift. And even in cases where there is blame to go around, what you've just described is what God is is calling us to, is to come honestly before him for the, the role that we have played. Yes, because at the end of the day, I can't take responsibility for what someone else has done. I can only take responsibility for my part, even if someone doesn't seek forgiveness and I think they should have, or if someone didn't apologize and I think they should have. If we can just get ourselves away from that, we come down to, okay, Lord, before you, I want to have things right. The other is, is that if I put focus on others, I can try to become the teacher while I'm still in the role of the student. In other words, God is still, I would say, simmering things, soaking them through our lives and teaching us. And he wants us to wait until it becomes something in the deep place of us before we share it. I know that God put on my heart two to three years before the book was published, the idea of it. But God made it clear, yeah, but I've got to get you far enough down the road, and I've got to do a deeper work in your life before you can really talk about it. And so sometimes we're excited to share what he's teaching, but it's, we have to be the student before we step into the role of trying to offer help to others. Mm-hmm. You write about uh, what you call rationalized compromise. Can you give us an example of uh, what that is and uh, how we can avoid it? Yes. So what happens in rationalized compromise is it may not be my failure, but I see the failures of others, and they're significant enough that I could point the finger and say, ah, they're the reason that I'm not close with God or not close with others. So sometimes it could be the flawed messenger in a situation where a pastor like myself has to walk through restoration. Maybe it's someone who keys in on scriptures that speak about other people's sins but neglect the ones that speak to my heart. It's like the phrase, I love what the Bible says to others. I'm just not too fond about what it says about me. It's this sense of rationalized compromise that I look at what's around me, and then what happens is I'm blind to what's going on in me, and I'm like a person driving down the road with no side mirrors or rearview mirror. I'm crashing into others and causing damage and pain and my blind spots are actually causing as much, if not more, problems in my mm. sphere of influence. Rationalized compromise is where we say, all right, I may not agree with what that person did, but let's put the side mirrors and the rearview mirror on and let me see things from God's perspective. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about uh, forgiveness. You talked about it earlier in our conversation, but uh, what does forgiveness look like in the context of redeeming your past? Now, that may apply to me as I'm seeking forgiveness, 
um, from God and others I may have hurt. It might be forgiving others who have hurt me. And uh, as you uh, talked about earlier, forgiving myself. What does forgiveness look like and entail when seeking to redeem one's past? The first is, harking back to the earlier statement, is that I have to acknowledge that Jesus is greater than every sin, including the sins committed against me or committed by me. So when Jesus teaches us that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, we make a decision that even if our emotions need time or our thoughts are wrestling, that we do not commit, so to speak, a type of idolatry where someone's evil is greater than God's good. Second, as we walk through that forgiveness, we have to learn to walk in the light of his forgiveness of us even before others are able to forgive and trust us. We must be patient to walk with them, but there's the essence in which our identity has to be solid in God. It's kind of like a phrase a pastor who spoke into my life said. He said, Kevin, you are who God says you are. We have to know who we are in God even as we're walking through the repairing journey with others. And then finally, part of that forgiveness, whether it's forgiving ourselves or forgiving others, it's this recognition that I can't tell somebody when to trust me, but I can choose to be trustworthy. And if it's forgiving another person, it's just saying, God, they may or may not be close in my life moving forward, but I can't let what they've done hold me back. And if it's my sin that needs to be forgiven, it's acknowledging that God has a plan that moves beyond that moment, and he doesn't want that to be the defining chapter of my story. Mm. Yeah. At the end of the book, you um, use a metaphor of uh, how people respond at an accident scene. I found that very intriguing. Can you describe a little bit about that that section of the book in which uh, you list some of the reactions people have to an accident um, and how that relates to this journey toward redemption. Yes, so you picture yourself in a traffic jam on the interstate, and we know where there's an accident up ahead, and as we come up, there's all these different people. The healthy ones are the first responders. The men and women whose job it is is to help remove the accident and then help those who are impacted and injured on the road to healing and restoration. The others are people that we call like the historian the one that wants to keep reminding you what you've done wrong, or the gossip, the one who just wants to tell others, the one who celebrates that they didn't fail like you did. And so what I described is, is that in the accident scene, not every person we come across in the accident of our lives is from God or is best for our healing. We need to look for those trustworthy people who want God's best for us and recognize there'll be people who come in and out that may want to observe and see the wreckage, but they're not interested in what happens after that. And so the chapter is very much about helping people discern who are the helpful people and who are the others we need to let drive on by. But that's such a great uh, part of the book. I really appreciated that. Again, we're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My uh, guest is Kevin Goose. Any final uh, advice you'd like to give to those um, who are beginning that journey toward redemption and seeing that their past can, in fact, be put in its proper context when they uh, come to God and seek that, um, that restoration? I would say one, complete surrender to God. Even if we don't know where things are going to go from here, I would encourage them to start with placing everything in his hands and let Jesus Christ be the center of their life. Two, be patient. Sometimes healing is instantaneous, 
but other times God chooses to work in a journey. It may seem like it'll never end, but to stay patient and don't try to look for shortcuts. And third, even though there may be times where our feelings or our thoughts may point us to past coping mechanisms or past behaviors, we have to recognize that we put those things behind us. We never want to be the one who returns back. God is leading us to the promised land, and there'll come a point where the wilderness must be behind us. And so there's a resolve within them. And then just finally, that even when they're not sure who they are, read what the Bible says about what God declares over their life, and let those be reminders of who they are and who they can be in him. Amen. Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us today. I so appreciate you and your book, Dry Bones. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, a local pastor brought this article to my attention. It's written by Stephen Matson, And the uh, the headline in the article asks what I think is an important question. Now, Stephen Matson is the uh, uh, is a contributor to Relevant Magazine and the Burnside Writers Collective. He studied youth ministry at Moody Bible Institute. He now is at uh, Northwestern College in Minnesota. Uh, anyway, he he asked the question, have churches abandoned the elderly? Now, many of you know that my mother lives with Dan Rice and me. She uh, is about 90 and a half at this point. And Finally, since things have opened up, she has been able to see doctors that she hasn't seen for about a year and a half. Uh, when the vaccine was available to her, she got the vaccine and then she was um, free to navigate you know, the world again. But we kept her pretty protected most of the time until that vaccine was available to her. Um, in any event, we now have opportunity to take her to see her doctors and she has a, a bit more freedom uh, it's interesting living with a 90-year-old, and um, as her needs increase, things that she could do on her own rather easily have become a bit more difficult, and some things she's had to relinquish altogether. Um, she doesn't contribute as much as she once did. Um, I, I should clarify that by saying what she contributes now is of greater value in many ways, uh, but in terms of what she brings to the table in the sort of modern vernacular, it's different. And so you have to make the decision uh, to recognize her value and its significant um, rather than just um, look at her physical decline as something that has to be tolerated. Well, in asking the question, have churches abandoned the er- the elderly? It makes me think about, you know, what do the elderly contribute to the church? And is that the measure by which we determine how much time and attention uh, attention they get in the church. Well, Stephen Matson says this, in an evangelical Christian climate obsessed with change, cultural trends, and trying to stay up to date and relevant, it's easy to undervalue the elderly. And I want to thank Pastor Greg Allen for bringing this uh, article to my attention. He's the pastor at Bethany uh, Bible Church. The best-selling authors, the hottest worship bands, the uh, superstar conference speakers, the mega church pastors are all youngish or at least certainly not elderly and they mainly marketed towards younger to middle-aged audiences well in many ways christians have suffered from the sin of apathy 
being guilty of ignoring a large segment of believers, the elderly, who are continually forced into the shadows of our ministries, leadership structures, uh, publicity campaigns, vision, and dialogue. In an era where fast-paced technology rules the world, elderly Christians are losing their platforms for communication, and the rest of us are too busy to reach out to them. Social media, blogs, websites, tablets, and smartphones continually shrink access to an elderly population that is unable to keep up, and we aren't waiting for them. There are exceptions, but many elderly prefer, well, a slower pace of communication that is done through face-to-face conversations, handwritten letters, and landline phones. For the rest of society, these antiquated forms of relating to one another aren't an option, but for Christians, maybe they should be simply for the sake of reaching out to the westernized version of an unreached people group. Now, when I think about my mother and the the role that she has played in her faithfulness in being a part of the church, the legacy that she has passed on to me, my siblings, and the extended family, uh, there would not have been a church unless her generation was faithful uh, to maintain and manage the church I think about all that they brought to the table, and now they're being sidelined because, well, they just don't move fast enough. One of the values of um, being a caregiver for my mother is the requirement that things slow down, conversation slows down. When we walk from one location to another, you walk more slowly. And in that um, that slower pace, I found a great deal of beauty that I would have missed had I kept the pace that I'm more familiar with. Well, the article goes on. The problems go beyond restricted forms of communication. As age naturally deteriorates physical abilities, it becomes more difficult to travel and commute. And the nuances of adjusting for such things as wheelchairs, hearing loss, poor eyesight, and the loss of mobility demand a lot of work and patience. And many churches simply refuse to make these accommodations. Last night after work, I stopped at Walgreens and I picked up what would be the second walker for our household. My mother has a wheelchair for some situations. She uses a walker in her house. Um, She has some hearing and seeing difficulties. It makes her a bit wobbly. I purchased a second one that we could have outside. We try to spend some time out in the back garden. uh, And I bought the, the, the thing and I brought it home. I put it together, which was something else altogether. Uh, And then invited her to come out to the back garden without telling her that we had a second walker. She came down the stairs, saw the walker there. She was so excited because she had some independence in the backyard. Uh, She was able to just grab the walker. She didn't need to hold on to my arm, which is usually how we how we walk. And she made her way around the garden, going wherever she pleased at the pace that was best for her making accommodation. It was such a delight to see her joy at such a simple thing. Again, the article, elderly related ministry is often geared toward obligatory satisfaction, maintaining the status quo. You can identify who and what churches value by looking at where they invest their resources. Follow the money. There are children's pastors, youth pastors, college pastors, young adult pastors, associate pastors, outreach pastors, worship pastors, senior pastors. But who cares for the elderly? That assignment goes to whoever has enough spare time, usually an associate pastor or volunteer group delegated to make hospital visitations and deliver shut-in meals. But few go beyond providing those basic services. Additionally, churches don't try to attract new elderly members, especially since that age demographic are generally decreasing through natural death 
on an annual basis. When changes do happen within their faith community, they almost always cater to the younger generations. Now, keep in mind what I talked about yesterday, right at this time of the program, how younger generations are shrinking and the elderly are increasing. What will that mean for the church moving forward if the church is not prepared to minister to the elderly. Service times are pushed back. Worship is modernized. Multimedia is flashier. Information is removed from print and posted online. Social media is implemented and a hundred other stylistic preferences continue to either ignore or alienate the elderly. It's easy to stereotype old people as complainers and people who are out of touch, but it's time to start honoring the elderly within our churches And realizing that they have just as much value and worth as everyone else, they are God's creation. And I tell you, when you slow down, you look, you listen, there's a great deal to be learned. Jesus continually reached out to people where they were at, uh, where they were at, rather, not uh, no matter how awkward, hard or painful it was. In many ways, avoiding, ignoring and abandoning the elderly isn't something that happens intentionally, but is done out of convenience because building relationships with them is just too hard. Christ calls us to serve and love everyone. And the question that is raised by Stephen Matson in his article is, are we? Has the church abandoned the elderly? And in doing so, what have we lost in that process? And I can uh, say from experience, we're losing a great deal as one generation passes out of view and we don't glean everything they have to offer and benefit by what they have to give. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.